and welcome to the latest Science of Sport podcast. I'm your host, Matt Solomon, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Connor Clancy. So Connor is a human performance specialist at Ortho Arizona, and he's also a faculty member at the Grand Canyon University. And he's here today to discuss how you can improve youth performance with limited resources and facilities. So without further ado, it's time to welcome Connor onto the show. So Connor, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me. Really excited for this. Been, uh, been looking forward to it all week. So I'm really glad that Mark connected us. Should be yeah, good. absolutely. So massive thanks to him as well. It's, uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's connected me to a couple of great practitioners. Uh, and uh, obviously, Connor, you're one of them. So can you give us a quick introduction as to who you are and what you've been up to until now? Uh, my name is Connor Clancy. I'm a strength and conditioning coach and exercise science educator in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, I currently work for a company called Ortho Arizona, which is a sports medicine company. What we try to do with our huge network of orthopedic surgeons, physical therapists, human performance staff, is we try to take the professional or college sports approach into the private sector. So we have an athlete that we can see from acute injury all the way back to you know full participation in sport. So I'm lucky enough to be kind of on the back end of that. And, you know, to me, I think that's the fun part. And what I studied. So I get to do the last little percent and uh, athletes think that I'm the important one when really I'm just the one empowering them to do what they always do. I uh, also teach exercise science courses at Grand Canyon University. So I'm part of that exercise science faculty as an adjunct. Um, I generally teach upper level classes to soon to be graduating seniors, um, which is a really fun endeavor for me in the classroom. It does feel like I'm speaking to peers more than I'm teaching, which is a really nice uh, mood to be in. And so it's a good environment. I'm glad to hopefully give some good advice to the next wave of uh, exercise science practitioners and hopefully give them at least a couple of things that will help them out in the future. Uh, maybe some, some practical tips here and there. And obviously, we're here to discuss uh, long-term athlete development. Can you talk us why, through why it's, it's important for youth athletes to, to do some kind of long-term athlete development then? Absolutely. So long-term athletic development, I think it's a pretty broad term. Most of us, I think, have a pretty good idea, and we've kind of wrapped our brains around what that means. What I see long-term athletic development meaning is setting up the youth athlete to be able to do the things that we're going to want them to be able to do at 18 and above. So when we look at a 12-year-old to 14-year-old athlete, we're probably not going to coach them the same way we'd coach an 18 year old or a really high performing mid 20 year old getting you know, paid to play sports or going to college to play a sport. But we do want to help lay the foundation to help them get there. And we think about, you know, the high level things that those athletes are doing, whether it's in the weight room or it's on the field, ice court, in the gym, we want to be able to help them develop those basic competence points and check them off. So when we do have that athlete, squatting with you know two times body weight on their back when they're a college athlete we know that they're prepared for that from a physiological standpoint so when i think about long-term athletic development i'm more thinking how can i help develop these kind of underpinning physiological capacities in these kids to make sure in six years when they're doing heavier things more intense things more sport specific things have a higher volume of work to handle they're prepared for it and it's not something that they have to remediate with a you know college or professional strength and conditioning staff and when when athletes then don't go through that when people athletes maybe they're too young to be athletes at that point but like when when people go through that um ltad phase what's the difference between those young people and those who don't 
do that LTAD process? Like what, what happens during those phases, which then obviously means that you do have to regress those exercises in the end. So during those phases, what I try to focus on with those kids are, it's honestly more proprioception and kinesthetic awareness stuff at the start. When you get an athlete who's 18 years old, who's a really talented athlete in their specific sport, you can tell when you pull them out of that sport and just into training or training for something more general or asking a, you know, a soccer player to go play a pickup basketball game. We now can kind of see some of those holes there may be in that, those, you know, biomotor ability development stages that they didn't get doing something more general. So when I think about that 18 year old athlete who maybe didn't have a long-term athletic development path guided by a coach or guided by you know, a parent who knows a little bit about it, teams they were playing on. What you'll usually see is an athlete who, within their sport and the constraints and context of the exact sport they play, they may be really talented, but you take them out of that and they may struggle with some pretty basic movement patterns, which, you know, to be honest, may not have a huge negative effect on the sport that they're currently playing and focusing on. But for those athletes who all hope to be the highest performers and climb to the highest rungs of their sport, that may ultimately become something that's a downfall because when you're now competing against the top 1% or the top 1% for that one contract or the one roster opening, if you don't have those athletic, you know, biomotor ability capacities, that may be the one thing that slots you behind somebody else. So, well, it may not matter to everyone. It may not matter to the same degree to everyone. At some point, it's something that may come back to bite you, and we we try to take care of that early on. So when when we we're trying to achieve that, right? So obviously, we don't want the the person you're working with to to miss out by that one little bit. Um, when we're trying to achieve that, what what kind of methods or tra training methods would an LTAD program comprise? So obviously, there's going to be loads of different stuff going on in there, but what what kind of stuff is going to be included? So I'm going to name drop my actually doubles as my mentor and my supervisor at work. So it's a pretty nice symbiotic relationship. Clive Brewer, what we've developed is a thought process where from 10 to 12 up to what hopefully ends up being a career in pro sport, we try to have these athletes develop competence first, capacity second, and then we start to dive more into performance enhancement. So if we're able to build youth athletes' proprioceptive ability, we're able to help develop these kinesthetic awareness, help them learn how to move, help them learn how to feel where they're at, help them kind of learn how to understand balance and those type of things. That usually works. And that should be something that, you know, gives a nice framework and a nice ground level to be built upon for that athlete as they develop. So a couple of the bigger methodologies or strategies that we have are aimed at movement skill and what we call ADC, just ability balance coordination. If we get these kids in, a, in an arena and we know that they're able to run around, deal with moving bodies around, change direction, speed up, slow down, get themselves up off the ground, Kind of move like an animal some of those animalistic movements that you see bear crawls that type of stuff if we're able to get a kid to do that then we know at least we're developing that very very ground floor kind of three level movement patterning then hopefully we can build on top of that loading competence. so once we develop competence is just the movement. then we're hoping competence can then be loaded 
we can develop a capacity. Once they're 18, now we're hoping that we've kind of checked off all those boxes and now we can start enhancing performance. Absolutely excellent. So that's like a nice little um, walkthrough of how that can be done. What what do you need then to do that? Because obviously we wanted to talk today about the facility side of things and how to do these kind of um, LTAD programs, but on a maybe on a budget, but in a low facility or a low, um, yeah, like there's not, not a lot of equipment in the facility. So what do you need to be able to do all of those things? Well, it's funny. There, I think there's a big difference between what do we want and what do we need. What we need, in my experience, is space. Now, if we have space, one of the best and most you know effective methodologies that I've personally utilized with kids is very standard kind of classic physical education PE games. If you've got space and you can knock out 10 or 15 minutes of a game like Sharks and Minnows with a group of 12-year-olds, for lack of a better explanation, we're tricking them into developing agility, right? I'm not having them move around cones and change direction at this and make this movement, do these things. When you got a group of 12 year olds, it's tough to get them to buy into that. If I now say, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna play sharks and minnows for 10 minutes and then we're gonna play a game I like bands tag where you're, You've got the little mini bands and it's okay you're snapping them at each other you've got to kind of dodge around those if you get hit you're frozen to get the guy back in you got to crawl through their legs so we're kind of mixing freeze tag into it we're we're getting the outcomes that we would hope to get from more strategic training interventions in a fun way that kids will actually participate in so i think in terms of what do we need it's space and i think the second thing we need i i know mike boyle says it a lot a lot of good coaches who've been in the game for a long time repeat it. You really want to see if you can coach, go coach kids. If you have space and you've got patience and you've got the ability to think about, okay, at this developmental stage for these kids at whatever age they may be, what are they capable of? How can we parlay that into doing things that'll be A, effective and B, fun so they'll actually do it? Then we're on to something. So I think of the needs we've got some space, some imagination, and some caring, and some patience. And when when you said the wants as well, right? So what what would you want in an ideal scenario, like best facility in the world? If you could design it right now, budget's no option. What are you going for? Budget, no option. I think for a youth po- a developmental youth population, I almost think a facility built out like a climbing gym or like a gymnastics gym with ramps, boxes, um, balls, BOSU balls, things that you can create like a, almost like a, a climbing route. I think that is probably the thing that I would spend if I had unlimited money on for a youth population, because the best way to get kids to move the way you want them to move is to put things in front of them that they have to deal with. And if we tell a kid, okay, when you climb over that box, you step up onto a 12 inch box, you want to feel like this. As the knee extends, you want to lean forward and have a forward trunk lean. They're going to look at you and be like, I don't know what this is, you know? But if you, if you set up an obstacle course for kids to get through and you say, okay, the essence of sport is problem solving. Our problem in football is I need to cross that line with the football. How do I do that? If we give these kids the problem of you need to get from this cone to that cone, there's a bunch of stuff in the way, get over it and through it however you can. 
we can nip a bunch of those biomotor abilities in the, in the bud without you know harping on it and forcing them to okay now we're going to stand there stick your arms out close your eyes we're going to balance on one leg some kids will, will participate in that but if you want to develop balance or you want to develop you know proprioceptive capability we may have to trick them into doing it so i think i think the obstacle course route and utilizing body weight and tempos and partner activities where we're keeping two athletes busy using a partner loaded spring box or the active agility where we're doing a mirror drill so we've got two kids involved you will get a little bit more buying from that because it's fun and also it's not as strictly programmed i suppose and you strictly program things for a 12 year old kid there's a certain type of kid who's going to really be into that and it's probably going to be one or two of a you know 20 player roster so finding ways to get them to do the things that you want them to do in terms of outcomes but finding a way to have them participate is kind of an art form so i guess kind of going back in terms of wants obstacles and space i would love to have all the obstacles in the world so let's let's say you don't have that right like that's brilliant I'd love you to have that. Uh, if I had millions and millions of dollars, I'd give it to you, but I don't. So let's say, <laughs> unfortunately, um, let's say you have really, really low level facilities um, and you have space. And let's say you're a coach with some patience as well, which is which gives you a little bit more to, to play with. What can coaches in those situations do to ensure that their athletes are then developing well throughout an LTID process? So I think there's two ways to think of it. Well, one way to think about it with kind of two... Uh, a fork in the road where we've got to think about both methods and strategies. So in terms of methods, if we've got, you know, the bare minimum equipment or nothing, we're going to have to leverage body weight into some type of thing. So we can have players hold positions. We can have them hold fair crawl positions. They're developing some kinesthetic awareness. They're learning, okay, my back has to stay parallel to the ground. I'm in a position where a bunch of large muscle groups are doing work. They're feeling stuff we can kind of coach them into positions that may not look exactly like what they're going to be participating in, in sport, but they're learning how to move. They're learning where they are in space, when they're moving. Bear crawls can be a big one, as simple as planks or, you know, long lever side planks or push-ups where they open up and rotate. And now they're balancing on one arm. We can burn the shoulder stability candle with a 12-year-old that way instead of having them do something that's more strictly programmed that is going to be kind of confusing to them. So leveraging body weight in terms of holding positions, um, slowing tempo down throughout movement patterns, um, using partners as external resistance, using you know a coach as external resistance. I'll have kids hold a lunge and say, okay, as soon as you get tired and I see you kind of lazing out of that and coming up, you're going to feel a hand on your shoulder and that's your reminder that, hey, we're not done yet. We're developing something down here. Doing something as simple as that, is that going to create, you know, a 12-year-old who's the strongest person in the world? Probably not. If we lack the equipment, we're not going to develop maximal strength that well, but we can start developing strength as a capacity at least. Um, movement skill, agility, balance, coordination work too. That can be a really easy one to, to get through. Utilizing games, great way to do that. Like I said, with sharks and minnows, you play a game like that, you've got a group of kids having fun. There's a little bit of competitive juices flowing, so that's going to increase buy-in too. And 
I can program the most beautiful reactive agility based intervention for a group of 12 year olds. And three of them are going to want to do it. Now, when they're developing reactive agility, playing a game that's fun and that they want to win. Now we're getting the outcome that we want. We're getting the stimulus that we want without it being something that's looked at as negative by the, by the children. So movement skills stuff, especially in terms of like single leg work, if we can, if we can really try to enhance like a single leg position by single leg squatting or using a partner to help with your balance while you learn how to single leg squat, going through partial ranges of motion, um, combination movements. One of my favorites is called the reverse corkscrew. Um, starts off as a, basically a single leg squat where you reach down, you cross over, you tap down outside of your pinky toe, you stand up and you go hand above your head. So your center of mass is shifting laterally a little bit. We're now rolling a squat, a hip hinge, a little bit of rotation, and overhead movement to stabilize the shoulder. We're at least touching on some capacities that yes, could be enhanced if we have World, but we're teaching these kids at least here's maybe how we move best and then we can load this once we so those methodologies focusing on movement skill focusing on agility balance coordination focusing on body weight stuff and how we can leverage tempo and positions and stuff into meaningful work is good um, in terms of strategies i keep harping on partner stuff i think there's two benefits to partner activity i think for one, you get more buy-in. If you've got two kids doing the same thing, we see the same thing with you know the highest level athletes. When we've got several athletes pulling the rope in the same direction, there's more buy-in. If you get two kids going through the same training intervention together, they're probably gonna take it more seriously. And also if we're in the team setting with a bunch of kids and we've got every kid partnered up doing something, we now have all 20 of them busy and not 10 of them busy and 10 of them with the opportunity to mess around or lose focus. What what my biggest what my biggest motto with youth athlete training is is keep them moving, keep them busy, keep them engaged. Does the perfect perfect program need to be there? No, perfect program is great. In the you know in the absence of resources, the perfect program is probably not something that's that's possible for right now. But if we can at least keep them bought in, moving and engaged then we're getting somewhere we're getting we're getting somewhere for those kids so partner activity competition based stuff um one of the big ones i use with developing athletes in the 14 to 15 year old range is like contact prep drills especially i work with a lot of youth hockey athletes so preparing them for contact can be as simple as okay we're going to shoulder wrestle i tell them okay right shoulder on right shoulder get low there's a line of tape behind each of you, whichever guy gets pushed behind his line of tape loses, go. So things like that, competitive juices flow. Two kids are busy at once, can't lose focus because they're engaged the whole time pushing their partner and are developing something that in the absence of equipment, you maybe wouldn't be able to develop. So things like that, where we can leverage just the body weight, space, and, you know, our understanding of physiology and developmental stages and things like that to at least move the needle a little bit tends to be effective in the absence of resources. Absolutely excellent. So when, when we try and bring all this together, I'm, I'm interested to hear what a session with you would look like because you've given us so many great examples, but how would you build that all together? So can you run us through if, if you had a group of, I don't know, 20 to 50 kids, however many kids turn up for an hour, um, what does a session with you look like 
from warming up all the way through to end of the training, training session? Yeah. So a warm up generally, I guess to, to start the process, usually when we program for anything, we're usually taking an approach where we work backwards. What's the outcome we want? How do we get there with the methodologies that we're choosing? Um, and then, you know, that's the outcome. This is what we want. This is how we can get there. Here's what we do. So the added step when we're in the absence of resources is now, okay, here's the objective that we want. Here are the constraints that we want. So do we want these kids to get faster? Yes. How may that be constrained? We have one coach for 50 athletes. We have one coach and 20 athletes in a thousand square feet. So whatever constraints we have is now going to inform the methodologies we can use because ideally, you know, we can work around those constraints. But if we're working with 50 athletes and it's one coach, I mean, there's a huge glaring constraint there. How are we going to manage that in terms of personnel? So you got to consider constraints there. In terms of a warm up, I think games like the Sharks and Minnows or one of my favorite Fox and Rabbit sprints, where you have one athlete about five meters out in front of the other one, they're facing the line, that athlete is reacting to the athlete sprinting at them. Their goal is to be able to turn out, turn out 180 degrees, don't get beat by the guy running and chasing you. Things like that, getting a little, little bit of competition keeping as many of those kids active at the same time as we can. And we are still, you know, scratching the back of what we want to accomplish in a warm-up. We're getting them moving, we're getting them activated, we're getting them a little bit sweaty, we're getting them focused in. So I usually use a game as a warm-up. I'll go through maybe a little dynamic warm-up with them too, but keep in mind the younger the kids, you put them into five lines and teach them, you know, skips and bounds and you're doing high knees and whatever. The likelihood of them being zoned in even through five minutes of that is pretty low. The first couple of minutes probably go pretty well, but then it starts to tail off a little bit. So I found games to be a really good warm-up strategy. Um, with that age of kids, if we're thinking like 12 to 14, I generally then have to think if I'm weighing the things that are important for them in terms of movement skill, agility, balance, coordination, strength, power, conditioning, for this age group, for this sport, what distribution of work do I want to assign to each of those things? For a 12-year-old, you probably don't need to do a whole lot of strength work because they're 12 years old. We're not going to be able to develop maximal strength all that well in the absence of equipment. Um, so we're probably going to have maybe 75% of our work made up, you know, movement skill, ABC-based stuff. So I think about how to distribute the work. If we've got an hour, warm up maybe 10 minutes, maybe you know, 30 to 35 minutes of ABC stuff where we're now playing um, contact prep games and we're partnering up and we're working on some reactive agility where we're standing on a leg, partner pushes us, we have to decelerate into a lateral lunge, we're learning how to move in the frontal plane, we've got a partner doing it with us, we're getting some buy-in, we're keeping kids moving, we're keeping them engaged because even the kids who aren't currently doing the exercise, they have a job pushing the other kid or a reactive agility drill, like a four corner reaction drill, kid in the middle, other kid is directing traffic. You're trying to trick the other kid, whatever cone that you point at, they've got to get to. As soon as they get back to the middle, you give them another direction. Even the kid who's not participating in the drill, they're getting some cognitive work because they're trying to trick their friend by pointing to other cones. So now we've got you know 20 kids active, not taking up a whole lot of space, and we're getting something done that we're hoping to get done. So. I usually go into ABC stuff next, the younger the kids, because that'll end up being the bulk of the work that they're going to do. It's probably meaningful. 
then we get to strength. We can make it as simple as, okay, we're going to separate into two groups. This group is going to hold a lunge. This group is going to hold a side plank. We're all doing it for the same amount of time. As soon as 30 seconds is up, this side, we plank on the other side. This side, we now lunge on the other side. If anybody, you know, gives up and goes to the ground, boom, coach blows the whistle. We got to start back over. So there's a little bit of intent that we lay over that now. A little bit of competition, not only from athlete to athlete, but now from athlete within. So we're getting some stuff done that way. And again, are we going to develop, you know, high-level maximal strength in the 12-year-old by holding a lunge position? No, probably not. But if we're taking the long-term approach and we are developing that competence now, that then can turn into developing capacity and then finally can turn into enhancing performance when they're a little bit older. I guess we're, you know, we're not too worried about developing maximal strength at the moment. We're worried about getting done what we can get done. So that would, that would kind of be the normal session, some type of warm-up game a bunch of ABC, agility, balance, coordination stuff that's appropriate, effective for that age group. I mean, probably involve some games there too. Um, strength work, which is more just developing proprioception, probably developing um, some more kinesthetic awareness. But you, I mean, you'd be, anybody who's not working with kids, you'd probably be surprised at how difficult getting into a lunge with the knee floating off the ground can be for kids who've never done that before. It sounds really elementary, but when you, you know, when you've got 10 kids who've never done anything like that before, it is, it is an exercise in coaching. <laughs> I can and imagine, what I especially after, when there's too, too many people doing different things, right? Oh yeah. And, and what I always have to remind myself of too, is when I think of distributing the work between warming up and movement skill and strength and conditioning, if that's applicable, a lot of interventions that we may use, especially if our focus is learning how to move and developing competence. We're filling the same buckets with different things. So I may think, okay, we're warming up for 10 minutes and we'll do 20 minutes of agility, balance, and coordination work. And I have to work to not forget that, okay, the warm up was also 10 minutes of that. Playing sharks and minnows, we are, you know, we're exhibiting reactive agility for 10 straight minutes for these 12 year olds to now go back into 30 more minutes of movement skill based stuff where we're working on agility or working on reaction time or whatever that may end up being a little bit too much. And now we start to have focus tail off. So when you are developing these type of programs for kids in the absence of resources, especially, you know, space personnel equipment, a lot of those buckets are being filled at the same time. And we're killing a lot of birds with one stone at times. So we got to remember that, okay, the warm up did in fact involve some ABC work. The ABC work did involve some, you know, single leg strength capability because we were working on X, Y, and Z. So thinking about how to program it in that, those, those terms can be pretty easy, but you also got to think, okay, by the end of 60 minutes or 45 minutes, however long the time slot may be, if we've had these kids do, you know, accumulate 30 minutes of like pretty max effort reactive agility or agility stuff we may have a group of kids who's like by the end losing focus and losing some steam. So I guess that would be one of the, one of the tips I'd give people for, you know, doing that type of program. We don't want to overfill buckets that are being filled already. Absolutely. Excellent. Connor, I think that's a really interesting insight into not just how you do things, but why you do things and how you build it up all the way through the, the different uh, stages and the AB, uh, ABC system as well. So Massive thanks for your time and effort today. Where can people find a little bit more about you and what you're up to? 
Um, I'm on Instagram. That's on social media. That's probably the the modality that I'm most active on. You can find me. It's at Coach Clancy, Coach Period Clancy. Um, I'm on X, formerly known as Twitter as well, just at Connor Clancy. I don't tweet a whole lot. Um, I try to repost or retweet, re, whatever, not retweet. Re-X? Is it? Yeah. <laughs> whatever, whatever the term is. Try to, yeah. I try to more like elevate people who are way smarter than me and retweet stuff that I think is worth reading. I don't do a whole lot of original tweeting myself. Um, but Instagram, I'm probably the most active on. Um, you know, I'm getting a little bit too old here to be able to handle TikTok, so I'm not on TikTok, if anybody was wondering. Um, yeah, uh, you know, I'm usually posting stuff at least a couple times a week with some of the younger athletes we get. Unfortunately, some of the younger ones that I'm working with, they're rehabbing too. So rehabbing into this already kind of muddy waters long-term athletic development can get kind of kind of interesting can get kind of frustrating at times but um i do i do try to post some insights into what i'm doing and you know if one person finds something valuable then i've done my job right absolutely excellent so connor massive thanks for your time and effort it's been a pleasure and i look forward to speaking there soon of course no thanks for having me on appreciate it Cheers, buddy. Thank you. Bye. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks to Connor for all of his hard work on today's podcast. I really appreciate it. I'm sure you do at home too. Before you leave, I want to point you in the direction of the Science of Sport Coach Academy. The Coach Academy is an overgrowing library of sports science courses which are broken down into bite-sized chunks. That means you can fit them in and around your busy coaching schedule. And of course, every time you complete one of those courses, you get a certificate of completion which proves your ongoing education. So if you're interested in getting into the Coach Academy, you can get in there completely free for the next seven days using the link in the show notes in just a few seconds time. And if you've enjoyed today's podcast, it'd be fantastic if you could recommend us to a coach, a colleague, an athlete, or a friend. It means that we can keep bringing you the best possible guests and the best possible content. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks from me. I'm Matt Solomon of Science Sport, and I'll speak to you next week.